Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't, people who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine through. Well, today I am absolutely delighted to welcome David Lee to Life Beyond the Numbers. David, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And it was Dr. Suzanne Evans who introduced us and Suzanne and I did an episode on the impact of change, episode 83, if you'd like to go back and listen to that one. I'm delighted she made the introduction for many reasons. But when I went on to David's website, the first thing that hit me was you call yourself a people whisperer. Please explain what that is. (laughs) Well, there's a bit of a backstory to it. And it also is sort of the backstory to how I came up with a name for human nature at work. So my first career was as a therapist, I worked in the trauma field and the mind body medicine field. And I was really fascinated by the neuroscience behind how like sometimes a single event, a trauma could change somebody forever. And I knew the psychology behind it, but I was wondering more about at the more primary, you know, neurological, biological level. And what was happening is I dove into that research. I was also burning out in the field and I I wanted to do something different. And I'd always been fascinated by the workplace and including how unhuman friendly oftentimes workplaces are. And so it was so wild as I was reading the research on how, whether it's acute stress or chronic stress affects the human brain and affects things like the ability to think creatively affects whether people are able to embrace diversity or are very tribal and xenophobic how it affects emotional intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. And as I'm reading all this research, I'm thinking, oh man, all the stuff that I had been reading in organizational development literature to try to get a sense of like, what are the needs in the field and in OD in the workplace? I'm thinking like, oh man, all this 
effort that's being put into change management, customer service, diversity training. This is back when intellectual capital and knowledge management was just being recognized as a key source of value in an organization. It's like all these things that companies are literally sp spending billions of dollars a year annually alone in the States, let alone globally, the way stress affects the human brain is preventing those things from working. And so it's like pouring water into a bucket with holes, except in this case, it's money. So when people would ask me like, oh, so what do you do? And I would like try to explain about neuroscience and everything. And I could see their eyes glaze over. I'm like, okay, that's not a really great way to explain it. And that's when I came across this keynote speech by Dr. Peter Senge that was so perfect. So for people maybe who are maybe a little younger and don't remember Dr. Senge, his book, The Fifth Discipline, was this blockbuster bestseller in the business world sometime in the 90s. I remember a colleague of mine who is also an author said, it's the most widely purchased book that was never read. <laughs> it's a pretty dense tome. But Peter Senge is just brilliant. And he's really, in many ways, considered like one of the the fathers of the whole learning organization. So in this keynote, and it was a 1994 keynote, he talked about writing his book. And he asked Edwards Deming, father of the quality movement, to write a dust jacket testimonial. And Deming writes back this page and a half diatribe in classic Deming fashion. It's kind of a curmudgeon. And it was funny because Peter Senge said when he read Deming's letter, he realized when you get to 80, you don't worry about sugarcoating things. You just tell it like it is. Because in this page and a half diatribe, Deming writes, our prevailing system of management has destroyed our people. And then he goes on from there. And Dr. Senge said, you know, what Deming was getting at is that our prevailing system of management is fundamentally inconsistent with human nature. And then he goes kind of wryly, that's all. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? And so that's when it hit me. It's like, that's really what I'm trying to talk about. It's understanding human nature and what makes people tick. And, and so that's where the idea of a people whisperer comes into play. And at the time, I would use Caesar Milan as sort of the pop culture analogy for people to understand. And, and I'll I'll explain that, but then I'll I'll add my correction based on multiple dog trainers who've since you know chastised me for using him. So you know, at least in the States for a long time, uh, Caesar Milan was really famous as the dog whisperer. And you think about what he would do is that he would take Fido, the dog, who's acting out, and the owners are like, what's up with Fido? Something's wrong with Fido. It's barking all the time or not walking on a lead or whatever. And he's able in a short amount of time to get Fido being a, a, you know, a fine citizen <laughs> and behaving well. And like when I'm doing training, I'll ask people, so you know, what does Caesar Milan know that the owners don't. And sometimes people immediately get it, other times not. It's like he understands canine nature. So because they don't understand canine nature, they're relating to their dog 
in a way that's counterproductive and they think the dog's the problem, but it's, they're the problem. They don't understand. He does. Now, since having multiple dog trainers sort of challenge me on that and say, you know, you know, this, I'm not going to turn this into a Caesar Milan bashing, you know, thing, but saying that he's really much more command and control than what's really good. And so I want to hearken back to where Caesar Milan got the name Dog Whisperer, which is from Horse Whispers. Exactly. And so instead of breaking a horse in order to get it ride, because they understand horse nature, equine nature, they have a very natural, gentle, organic way of collaborating with a horse to get them to be able to be rideable. And so that's where the idea of like trying to help, whether it's a middle manager, a senior leader, or let's say a tech support person or a customer service professional dealing with humans. It's like the more you understand human nature, the more you bring out the best in people. So that's what I think of as a people whisperer. Wow. <laughs> that is one of the most comprehensive answers I've ever got, I think, to a question. <laughs> and I almost don't know, like, I've forgotten the beginning of the answer. Uh, uh, oops. <laughs> but I've made some notes because something you said really struck me at the beginning was that our workplaces are unhuman friendly. And how did that happen? Yeah, here's a couple ways that I make sense of it. So one historically is the way people learn to manage is based on a model that was created to get people in factories to be compliant, like people who used to work for themselves on farms and do whatever else they do to get them to be compliant. So it's the prevailing system of management. And I love how Dan Pink in one of his talks, he, he says, think about this, that the, the typical approach to management, the models that that informed that were developed by men who were born during the Civil War. And, and then he goes on to say, how's this for a perfect analogy? He goes, think about it. The cutting edge communication technology in the Civil War was the telegraph. Imagine somebody in your company saying, instead of all the cutting edge telecom stuff, we're going to use a telegraph. Good idea, right? It's like, it's a little outdated, <laughs> you know, and it's like our management system is a little outdated. But popular. Yeah, and I, I know. And that's like, before we started recording, that's where we're both like, like, what is up with that? Yeah. And I guess that speaks to, and this is more of a, whatever, philosophical, maybe spiritual side of all this is one of the things that I think about is how transactional most workplaces are as opposed to relational. And I, so many people have learned to shut down their humanity just to make it through the day. In a lot of workplaces, you have to develop a thick skin just not to be chronically ticked off and resentful and hurt. 
And that same thick skin can make you insensitive and compassionate, if that's a word, you know, uncompassionate toward other people. And so it's like so many organizations, I think, are just like robotic and it just perpetuates itself. It's a tragedy. I I honestly believe it is like a tragedy. And even just what you say there, it it kind of brings a lump to my throat, even though I talk about this stuff all the time. But when you say like shut down humanity to make it through the day, I mean, who in their right mind ever thought that that was a good idea? It, and and that it's caught on. I can I can understand, to be honest, if it, if if an army is something that we are mimicking, you know, because lives depend on people taking control and being in command and all of that and following orders. But in an office, our lives don't depend on our bosses or the work or whatever, even though, and this is back maybe to where we started with neuroscience and trauma, even though it can feel like that. So it's, is it a survival technique and it's a leading question i'm asking you here in the way but are we trying to survive then every day at work and is that why we shut our humanity down yeah great question and i think that's true and there's a bunch of different angles that are coming to mind to approach that i think so one thing that comes to mind is you think about humans are challenging (laughs) and how you know a lot of the work that i do is with managers and how often they don't want to have the conversations they need to have to find out like what's going on and i get even though sometimes it's frustrating it's easy you know, it's easy for all of us to look at somebody else like, well, just talk with them about it. And we, when we look at our own experiences, we've all had more than enough experience of trying to deal with somebody that we find unreasonable. And so I think a lot of what happens in the workplace with that shutting down and putting up a wall is that people don't, quote, want to go there because they don't know how to manage the other person, like what'll come up with the other person and they don't know how to manage their own emotional state. And so it's like, let's just not go there and we'll just soldier on and, and like pretend Joe is not slacking off or Sally isn't being rude in meetings. And it's just not worth fighting that fight. And there's, I mean, I suppose, like you say, it's easy for us to sit here and and to say this and everything. And having been in many workplaces myself and often taken the bull by the horn and have had those difficult conversations or those conversations that I didn't necessarily want to have. And often the thought of it is way worse than actually having it. And... I suppose it's like anything, isn't it? It's a bit of practice. And with practice, you get better, you get stronger. It doesn't get easier, but you get better. And 
it's maybe the first time you come across that that choice that that you grab the bull by the horns or retreat and whichever you choose then becomes habitual perhaps as you go through your career or you're watching the people ahead of you avoiding conversations and I don't even think there's a question in that but <laughs> well I, I I I think yeah it's both I think it's definitely both those and I also I really agree with what you said about the practicing and actually I was thinking about it this morning how the more you practice having challenging conversations, the less courage you need. Because like with anything, the more skilled you are, the less daunting the task seems. There was something else I wanted to go back to when you talked about people being in survival mode. One of the lines of research that has been most influential in my work has been the work of Dr. Paul McLean, who's now deceased. He he was the he was actually the person who people have heard the term lizard brain. He's actually the person who coined the term reptilian brain. And his triune brain theory really of all the aspects of human nature I've shared at events, it's it's the phenomenon of downshifting based on his work that has been the most like light bulbs going off with people like, oh, that's what's happening. So do I mean to describe a little? In, okay, because it really, it really helps. And, and at the risk of geeking out, we can also go into polyvagal theory, which I'm more recently really into. And so as I, as I dove into the trauma research, I came across Paul McLean's work. And I actually got a chance to interview him a couple of times before he passed away. Just a, a really wonderful gentleman. And he said, check this out. He said that his years, and it was somewhere around 10 years, the years he spent studying reptile behavior gave him more insight into human nature than all his psychiatric residencies. He said there like writ large were the primitive roots of so much of human nature. And in watching that and doing all kinds of experiments and seeing what parts of brains do what, he came up with his triune brain theory, which is are the human brain really comprised of three brains. So the reptilian brain, the most primitive part of the brain, which was like the best model brain on earth, I think it was like 250 million years ago, something like that. So a long time ago. So inside the human brain, we're packing around a brain that's older than humanity. So think about that. And embedded in that are hardwired programs for survival of the fittest. And then when mammals evolved, they do things that reptiles don't. They do they have social connection, maternal behavior, et cetera. They're developed over that primitive reptilian brain, what he called the paleomammalian brain. So ancient mammalian brain. And so that part of the brain allowed for 
social behavior and other behavior that reptiles don't have. As evolution chugged along, we developed a super fancy brain that he called the neo, the new mammalian brain. So the big neocortex that wraps all the way over. And so all aspects of the brain are humming along and, you know, doing their thing. And this part of the brain, the prefrontal lobe, oftentimes, um, you know, neuroscientists will call it the executive lobe or the CEO of the brain. So it kind of makes sure everything's working together. But what downshifting is and, and why it's so important for organizations to understand the importance of lowering the ambient stress level and not adding unnecessary sources of stress is when the brain detects a certain level of threat, this fancy computer in the brain, this prefrontal lobe, the CEO, loses control of the brain and the reptilian brain, which its job is to help us survive, it takes over. And that's great because we need survival programs when we're threatened. The problem is that the reptilian brain doesn't know the difference between physical threat, like somebody coming after you in a dark alley, and psychological threat, somebody speaking to you rudely in a public forum, or your boss giving you feedback that you did something wrong and you don't believe that's true, et cetera. And so downshifting is when the brain is taken over by the reptilian brain and all the advanced uh, cognitive processes like empathy, impulse control, logical thinking, planning for the future, cognitive flexibility, A, plan A doesn't work, I'll go do the plan B, all that goes out the window. And one of the things I think about the reptilian brain is imagine a thumb drive plugged into a USB port in your brain. And that thumb drive is all little apps of survival of the fittest. The strong will survive. The best defense is a good offense. Protect your territory. If you're not part of my tribe, you're an enemy. Anything new and different is to be avoided. Like, as you hear that, think of all those types of behaviors that happen in organizations. Ooh, yeah. And it sounds like a battleground. You know, that's what it's like. It sounds like a battleground. There are all these things. Don't stand out. Don't put your head above the parapet. Make sure you don't get into a situation where you're rejected or neglected. All of that kind of stuff, because you're tying, or at that point, the stress is tying your identity somehow to that group. And you need to fit in and belong or you might be outcast and then it will be survival at at what cost but of course it's not like that at least it shouldn't be like that perhaps is a better way of saying it so how do we learn to regulate that or to convince our brain that I'm not in danger here. I love it. And that really actually loops us back 
to the whole relational versus transactional culture. So I jotted down about and caveman cavewoman days to be rejected means you're dead. You're you know, an outcast. You will soon be dead. And you mentioned about the need for belonging. Even before I started diving into polyvagal theory, I was very aware of the research on resilience and how one's social network, and obviously not Facebook kind of, you know, <laughs> real, so, yeah, real social network, all the epidemiological studies showing how powerful, like number one, relationships are in somebody's health, their ability to come back from life-threatening illnesses, et cetera. And so that's why like one of the messages I try to get out there is paying attention to relationships in the workplace and cultivating them and strengthening them. That's one of the most important things an organization can do to create a resilient workforce. And especially given the pandemic and the isolation, everything, it makes it even more important to be intentional with that. And then with polyvagal theory, and I'll say this, and then I'll just briefly explain polyvagal theory. One of the major tenets of polyvagal theory is the human nervous system was hardwired for co-regulation versus self-regulation. Yeah. So just real quickly, and I just, I recommend listeners just at the simplest level, just go to YouTube and type in polyvagal theory and just watch a video or two. There are plenty of great videos and interviews, but it was a theory that was created by Dr. Stephen Porges. And I, I don't remember the exact what prompted him to start exploring this, but realizing that there are three types of of neural pathways, sort of like sub-nervous systems in the human nervous system. And each of those pathways make possible particular responses. So without turning this into a polyvagal lecture, just briefly to orient listeners. So the ventral vagus neural pathway, so that's like goes down the front of the human body. So like your chest, the ventral vagus nerve in that system neural pathway, that's the most recent evolutionarily. And that makes social connectedness possible. And when we're operating out of the ventral vagus nerve, where I call it cool, calm, and connected. So I, I don't know if cool, calm, and collected is the saying they say in the UK, but that's uh, say it in, in the States. And so it's cool, calm, and connected. So when we're in ventral, we're able to respond in patient, compassionate, mature ways, and we feel connected with others, and we're interested in connection. So that's that. Then the sympathetic nervous system, the classic fight or flight, that's our emergency response nervous system. So when we experience we're in some kind of danger. So the adrenaline, the rapid heart rate, all that kind of stuff. Well, when we're in sympathetic, we don't have access to the behaviors that form connection. We're in defense and protective mode. 
And then number three is dorsal vagus, which is shutdown mode. And that's the oldest evolutionarily. I think Stephen Porges said it's something like 450 million years old, something like that. Anyway, it's really old and it harkens back to reptiles where if they couldn't flee, they would just sort of collapse in a heap and maybe like the predator will just move on. Well, obviously it worked or else it wouldn't have stayed on. And so one of the things that I love about polyvagal theory, two things that relate to why I'm bringing this up is Dr. Porges talks about each neural pathway as being a platform for a set of behaviors and responses. So remember again, ventral, cool, calm, and connected, when we're feeling rested, when we're feeling emotionally safe, when we're feeling all is well with the world, we have access to pro-social behaviors, compassion, empathy, get curious, not furious, all those, seek first to understand, all those things. But if we're in sympathetic arousal, the sympathetic or dorsal we don't have that. Those are platforms for very different behaviors. They're in survival behaviors. They're not social connection behaviors. So if employees, including us, if employees are feeling overwhelmed most of the time, their nervous system is saying you're being threatened. And so they're in fight or flight, or if it's chronic, like the pandemic, they might be in dorsal. So they don't even have access to the behaviors that make for a great culture or great customer service. How do we get anything done? <laughs> <laughs> because, if you know, as you're talking, I'm just imagining thinking back even to being in an office, in an open plan or in a meeting or a workshop or whatever it might be. And people are in all different places. I don't mean literally as in their desks or whatever, but they're in one of those three states. And it's not obvious by looking at them we don't know what anyone is thinking. It may be some people might look frazzled, but maybe they look like that all the time regardless. So you can't really ever tell. So how do we make workplaces more accepting perhaps, or more open to the fact that not everybody is as turned on or switched on as I am today or not everybody is at their best all of the time without as well thinking about singling people out you know what I mean saying well actually David doesn't look like he can contribute anything today so we're not going to invite him to the meeting because he's in defensive mode and we know what that's like you know what I mean <laughs> sorry that was a very long question <laughs> no, it's a really important one. It actually gets at, at areas that are really near and dear to my heart. So back to the idea of the human nervous system is designed for co-regulation. And so just for listeners, like you think about co-regulation, just think about like the classic mother with a baby. Babies can't regulate their nervous system. 
And so whether it's the mother or the father, like rocking the baby, doing the cooing, the patting and all that, that's not only regulating the baby's nervous system. So it helps them from like screaming to like mellowing out. Not only is it regulating the baby's nervous system, it's actually training the baby's nervous system to learn how to self-regulate. So from Stephen Porges's work, he came to the conclusion that at the core were co-regulatory beings. And part of how he came up with that, and, and again, I'm like, God, don't get too much into the, the neuroscience here, is he talks about, he called it neuroception, how the nervous system picks up on cues about whether this other person is safe to be around or not, safe to be vulnerable or not. And those cues happen. And the reason why I called it neuroception, they happen out of awareness, conscious awareness. But what we do become aware of is our feelings, like our bodily sensations. And so if I'm around Joe and my nervous system is picking up anger in Joe or in frustration, and I'm not aware of what signals I'm picking up on, but I'm aware that I'm feeling anxious around Joe. And then what ends up happening is, as you know, humans were meaning-making creatures. I then come up with a story about why I'm anxious around Joe. And it's usually all about Joe, never about me, of course, <laughs> you know. And so I want to pull back from that tangent. So the idea of co-regulation, my memory is it comes from his understanding of how the nervous system is constantly both picking up cues of other people and also projecting cues to other people. And anybody knows about mirror neurons knows about that. And I don't know if you ever heard this term. I love this, that Daniel Gold of emotional intelligence uh, fame describes mirror neurons as emotional Wi-Fi. Isn't that great? So people are always broadcasting their emotional state and we're always picking it up. And so another long way around to your question, well, what do we do with that? Because people are in you know, all different states, et cetera. And that's why I'm such a believer and try to practice it and, and fail and try again and do better at it is like, how can we quote, be the change? And it's like, how can I show up in the best possible way I'm capable of so that, and then polyvagal theory time, I love the term, I, I don't know if Stephen Porges or Deb Dana came up with it. Deb Dana is a therapist who's taken his work and just done amazing work with it. And they talk about super co-regulators. So it's people just being around them your nervous system feels better. You, you know, those kind of people, you know, they bring a smile to your face. You feel safe. You feel comfortable admitting mistakes, being vulnerable about what you don't know, being able to laugh at yourself, being able to bring up an idea that may sound really dumb, but you know, they're not going to bite your head off, et cetera. And so what we can do, number one, is make sure we're filling our well so we bring you know a positive vibe that we're broadcasting into the workplace 
And then also in this, at least for me, has been a lifelong journey is practicing emotional self-regulation when somebody comes at you from a dysregulated place. It's like, how can I not be reactive? So I'm in charge of my nervous system. How can I develop the skills so when this person is acting snarky, antagonistic, whatever it is, I can still have a nervous system that's a neural platform, remember ventral, that makes it possible for me to respond in a mature, compassionate, rational, and humane way. How many people do you think ask themselves this question? <laughs> Not nearly enough. <laughs> <laughs> And I know, but I don't even know that people know to ask themselves this question. And I think a bit of what you said is, you know, we we make up that story that it's always about Joe. And, you know, if Joe is angry, it's about Joe. And, and we do, and maybe that's a survival thing as well, is we're not very tolerant perhaps when other people are angry or frustrated or whatever. However, we're easy to excuse ourselves if we feel frustrated or intolerant because there's a reason for it. Yet we don't kind of have that card for others often. That's one thing I think about. And the other thing is that, I don't know if you've come across Mark Brackett, Professor Mark Brackett, he's written a book called Permission to Feel. Ooh. And he, yeah, exactly. And he heads up the Center for Emotional Intelligence at Yale. And in his book, he says, and I really like this, I think it's very simple. He said, we're always in approach avoid mode. So, you know, is it safe to approach Susan or should I avoid her? And it's a bit the co-regulation thing. So I know by that feeling that I'm not going to go near Susan now because she seems agitated or I don't understand what's going on. But one of the mean things about the way we're designed, and maybe mean isn't the right word, but unfortunate, let's use that word, unfortunate is that actually when we need somebody most is when we're probably sending out those avoid signals. Because I actually need someone to take this load off me. I need someone to help me. I don't know how to ask. And I'm sending out all of these signals that's pushing everyone away. So it really does take a big person. And I mean that in a, in a maybe a, a generous person or a brave person or a courageous person to put that feeling aside and go, actually, Susan needs help. Can I help her? What can I say today that will make her life a little bit easier or allow her to lessen that burden? Rather than going, God, that Susan's always in a bad mood. I'm just going to stay away from her forevermore. And that seems to be, to me, especially in workplaces, one of the crux kind of points that we need help with. Beautifully said. Oh, man, that is fantastic. And it and it's so hard. I, I very much struggle with that. And, and it's like, I want to be more like that person and continue to 
to work with that. Boy, there are a couple of things that you said that I want to respond to. So, so back to that point, I remember years ago listening to something that David White, the poet David White said, yeah, yes, he's amazing, that I loved. And he was talking about the burdens that everybody carries. And he talked about how he had had several occasions in his life where People had act, you know, friends or family had acted toward him in a, in a pretty unkind way. And he had really ill feelings toward them. And then later he discovered that they were carrying a really hard burden at the time. And that's why they acted out. And once he understood that, he was like, oh, okay. He let go of his anger and resentment. And he said something like, after having that happen several times, I figured I'd just like cut out the middleman and just, you know, just figure they're having, you know, they're carrying burns, having a bad day. And I I love that. And so that's something I, I continue to work on. And I love that you say that. And back to, depending on where our nervous system is, that each of those three states is a platform for a set of behaviors. If we're in fight or flight or shutdown, we don't have access to that perspective or the, the, I, I love you said about uh, the courage and, and generosity to cut them some slack. The other thing, so that also speaks to, we're not being self indulgent. If we're taking good care of ourselves, we're, enabling us to be the best co-regulator wherever we go that we can be. I also, because it's such an important point, I want to go back to something you said earlier about how we give ourselves a break when we like, oh, they're like ex extenuating circumstances. And so, <laughs> and so one of the aspects of human nature I love sharing in programs is, which is I know, you know, given what you said is the fundamental attribution error. <laughs> and so for the listener, so attribution, what we attribute somebody's behavior to, like, why did they act this way? And so one of the big takeaways in social psychology is how profound context is in terms of an influence for why we do what we do. And we grossly underestimate how much context influences us. And so with a fundamental attribution error, if Joe acts rudely toward us, we attribute Joe's behavior to an enduring personality characteristic, i.e. a personality flaw. But when if we get a little snarky or impatient, of course, it's because the situation we're in, we're just stressed out. You know, it's not us, it's the situation. And so we attribute our behaving badly or less than optimal to context and other people to enduring personality flaws. So a fundamental attribution error. So it's like, hey, here's an idea. How about if we give, and I'm speaking to myself too, like how about if we give that person some slack and maybe back to the David White thing, maybe just guess that they're having a bad day or maybe they're dealing with intense elder care or um, they're thinking about getting divorced or their teenage kid is driving them crazy again. Like, hey, how about that? And I think that that's one of the secrets really, isn't it, David, is, is coming up with alternative narratives or contexts for what 
is causing that behavior because that's what we tend to do we judge the behavior rather than understand the person and what lies beneath the behavior and actually by just saying just what like you did there they're in a bad mood today because oh the train was late it was wet out and the car splashed them they spilled ketchup on their shirt at lunch or whatever (laughs) there's so many factors that can influence how we show up and how we feel and we never really know how much impact something has on us until it happens and it's easy to say oh that wouldn't bother me or I would never get upset about that but actually until it's happened to you you don't know how you're going to deal with something you don't know how you're going to react to something and it's not about you it's about the person in front of you absolutely you think about how often we judge somebody and then when we get in the same experience like oops (laughs) my bad like i could see now why they acted that way i want to back up to Mm -hmm. something that you said when you're talking about like we don't know you know if the water splashed on them the ketchup on the shirt etc and it made me think of something else that I think could be really helpful to listeners in terms of understanding human nature in the brain and how stress affects people. And so back to the idea or, or the, the phenomenon of downshifting. So again, the prefrontal lobe loses control of the brain, the primitive reptilian brain takes over because a level of threat has been detected, whether it's, it's real or not, whether it's physical or psychological, emotional or flat out imaginary. One of the other reasons why it's so important to reduce like the ambient stress level of a workforce and create strong relationship bonds is another one of the survival programs in the reptilian brain is paranoia. Well, let's combine the two, paranoia and xenophobia. So if you're not part of my tribe, you're the enemy, you're out to get me. And you think about that, it makes sense that xenophobia is hardwired. As I'll say in workshops, that back in caveman, cavewoman days, there wasn't a big tourism industry. <laughs> so if somebody was from away, they were not, you know, there for for good reasons. They weren't you know, welcome. They were not welcome. So you think about how often there's that us versus them, modern version of xenophobia between labor and management, or between production and sales, or whatever the finance and everybody else (laughs) there you go that's great that's great so very much tribal us versus them that's reptilian behavior well what keeps us out of reptilian behavior well this modern neo-mammalian brain what helps us stay in the modern neo-mammalian brain, this prefrontal lobe, especially a big part of it is social ties, is relations, is social connection. And so if, and, and this is just to kind of, I know sometimes I can get a little astray and like all these nodes out there, let me reel it back in. 
that how we explain why somebody did what they did. Think about this. If you know, we'll, we'll do Jack and Jill. Okay. If Jack says something that you could quote, take the wrong way, and you have a relationship with Jack, you're not going to assume negative intent, most likely. Like, oh, he was just joking. But let's say Jill, you don't know Jill. You ha- we're back to we're meaning making creatures and we and attribution. We need to attribute. Why is a person saying this? That's hardwired into the human psyche to make sense out of stuff. We're mo- way more likely to attribute negative intention to Jill if we don't have a connection with her because we don't know her like we know Jack. And back to the paranoia that if we don't have the connection and we're feeling maybe unsafe with Jill, the attribution we're going to make for why she said it, the meaning we're going to tell herself will probably be a paranoid meaning. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Versus Joe, it won't be paranoid. And one, one quick, super short story to illustrate this. I was sharing this with his leadership team and this guy starts laughing. I'm like, like what? And he said, oh my God, I saw this in spades when I worked for the forest service. So he was at headquarters. We would always joke about the forest rangers who were at the most isolated, remote stations. They were always so paranoid about the man. Anytime there would be some sort of message from leadership, they always assumed negative intent because they were so isolated. There wasn't the relational piece. And so they had reverted to that reptilian, paranoid, xenophobic way of understanding the world wow which i suppose happened a little bit in covid as well for us for people that actually had to be isolated from others losing that connection and yes we can connect like we're doing now in different countries and so on but those bonds those social bonds that relationship in person makes it so much stronger but and the problem is we're almost out of time which is really like I feel like we haven't even got started here I know (laughs) one of the things you say is that every better business result requires having a better conversation and we've talked a lot about relationship in relation to relating better conversations, but a relationship isn't just not a line management relationship, is it? That's not what you mean, I assume, (laughs) rightly or wrongly. So what is a relationship? How do we have better conversations? Yeah, so I mean, I just think simply just relationship, any person that you're interacting with, and I typically think of like repeatedly, so not like with a grocery store clerk, that sort of thing. And I came up with that saying from years of both working with managers, interviewing employees, and hearing and witnessing the dramas of what creates so much stress and strain in the workplace, and just seeing and again, experiencing how Rarely people are willing to have the conversation. And if they did have the conversation and the skills to make the conversation go well, it would resolve the problem or get them to 
have the opportunity that they want. So like opportunity, like let's say get their sales team to sell more or their customer service people to provide even better customer service, whatever that outcome is. It boils down to people, you know, until we start, you know, robots taking over the workplace, you're dealing with people. So have conversations. It's that simple. It really is that simple. And do the hard work so you can do the conversations well. Yeah. And that requires you taking responsibility for you. I think the onus is really on us to be able to self-regulate so we can co-regulate healthily. Absolutely. And do the hard work. Like oftentimes when I do constructive conversations workshops, I'll share this story that is the framework of it all of dealing with a coworker who was like verbally abusive to me and how I brought it up. And sometimes people say, man, you, that takes so much time when I tell them all the time I took to be able to get into a positive state so I could have the conversation. And my response is like, yeah, sure. It does take a lot of time, but it's worth it. It totally is. How much time is spent talking about the problem in the first place and talking about the person and talking about talking about it? You know, you could go on and on and on, but we can't. Exactly. And how much organizational friction happens because of relationship friction happening because people aren't willing and able to have the conversation? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. David, how does somebody connect with you if they would like to learn more? Because I'm sure they will. (laughs) Thanks. So either on LinkedIn, there are a million David Lees, but if you put David Lee in Maine, (laughs) you'll find me. And my website is humannatureatwork.com. I'm in the process of upgrading. It's rather uh, ancient looking, but it's got lots of articles on it. And it does. It's definitely worth checking out. And I think human nature at work is is such a lovely name as well and it just makes it simple that that's what it's about it's about human nature yes so david thank you so much for your time and i definitely want you to come back again because i think we only got halfway or a quarter way through a conversation absolutely this was super fun look forward to doing it again thank you thank you so much for listening i hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode if something rang through for you be sure to let me know or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too and if you enjoy helping others i'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.